And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of the Lord. In the passage that Marian just read for us in Mark chapter 12, we read, they, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him, Jesus, in his talk. So here's what's happening right now. It's Mark chapter 12. It's Monday of Holy Week, of Passover week, and Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the Jewish authorities at this time plot to eliminate Jesus. And the question is why? What has he done? And the basic summary is this. They collectively saw Jesus and his movement as a threat. What's most amazing in this particular passage is that the Pharisees and the Herodians joined together, which I know means a lot to you guys, right? So let me give you as best as I can a summary of them. Them working together was two people that were on nearly opposite ends of the political and religious power spectrum. So if we were giving a, a brief overview, this is going to be your brief history lesson of first century Jewish uh, groupings as quickly as I possibly can. Caesar was over everyone. The Roman authorities conquered and subdued everyone. Okay, so the tyranny is over them. But inside of Israel, it's being run by various groups, political, religious power groups. The Herodians were the closest to Caesar. They were the royalty. They lived in palaces, and they basically conformed to Roman practices to keep power, which included their moral and ethical and semi-religious practices. Next over were the Sadducees. These were the priests. They ran the temple. And they were also kind of high up in status, but they also conformed a little bit more to the Herodians and to keep Caesar happy. Then were the scribes, who were basically lawyers, studying the law, which for them was the Torah, the Old Testament, right? And then over next, beyond that, were the Pharisees, the rabbis in synagogues all over the place. And then were the two groups that tried to avoid or attack society. The zealots, who they operated with daggers, and they were rebels. And the Essenes, who lived in caves, monks, avoiding all of the culture altogether. So here we have the Pharisees and the Herodians who should be at opposite sides. But at this point, pretty much everybody is in common agreement they need to get rid of Jesus, which means it takes a unique common opponent to bring together political and religious enemies. But you think about World War II, right? You had the United States and the Soviet Union deciding that there was a common enemy, a threat bigger than both of them. And so they come together. We saw this in the months after 9-11, when Democrats and Republicans agreed for about three months because of a common enemy. 
Jesus, at this point, is opposed by all the authorities, whether it's the Roman or the religious. All the authorities see him as a revolutionary figure, and those in power fear what he is about to do. In order to understand this, we have to also understand that Jerusalem at this point was a tinderbox, ready to go up in flames of revolt. So they had been under Roman oppression for years, and this was the week of the Passover, a national holy day where all the symbolism of Passover, exodus out of Egypt, judgment on the Egyptians, that all of that was in mind, and the people are ready to revolt. And you think about it, Revolutions are filled with symbols and stories that echo in a collective ethos. So the American Revolution had things like a Boston Tea Party, the signing of a Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths. A guy, Patrick Henry, shouting, give give me liberty or give me death. And these stories, the symbols behind things like the American Revolution, are a part of our national identity, our collective ethos as Americans. Well, in first century Israel, they had the same types of stories. One of the main ones was the Passover and Exodus out of Egypt. But another one that we often overlook happened 200 years before Jesus. It was the Maccabean Revolt. You might know it more famously because of this tradition called Hanukkah, from which that comes. So at the time, about 160-something BC, so about 200 years before Jesus, the Syrians had come in and conquered Israel And they had taken over the temple, the high holy place of of the Israelite worship, and they had desecrated it. And they were doing pagan worship in there. And at this point, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, he was a high priest. He had escaped up into the hill country like Galilee outside of Jerusalem. He gathered an army of faithful followers, the true Israel. And he takes them and enters Jerusalem He defeats the pagan armies of the Syrians. He cleanses the temple of all of their idolatry and reestablishes faithful worship of Yahweh. And he ushered in a faithful dynasty, a kingdom actually that lasted for decades. So Judas Maccabeus was a revolutionary figure. And the Maccabean revolt was fresh in the minds. The symbolism, the stories, what happened and how it happened, was all fresh in the mind of a first century Israelite person as they're standing there in Jerusalem. It was the story of Yahweh's arrival for his people when they were being oppressed and all of their national hopes were built on this sort of thing. And so in first century Israel, it wasn't Syria, it was Rome and the corrupt leaders in Jerusalem. And all of this came to be on a national holiday of the Passover and a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth, of course, what did he do? Not too much different than Judas Maccabeus. He was up in Galilee. He gathered a band of followers, 12 in particular, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He was constituting a new and faithful Israel. He starts talking about the kingdom of God, which is very revolutionary language. And then on Palm Sunday, as we talk about it, but the first day of Holy Week, of Passover week, when all the national hopes are high and the desire to throw off the Romans is really high, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone is shouting, Hosanna, save us, son of David. He is reenacting the coronation ceremony of Solomon, who also rode in on a donkey over the Mount of Olives to the shouts of people saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David, who is Solomon. And then he 
goes up to the temple, overturns the money changers, we talked about that last week, symbolically cleansing the temple of the kind of corrupt practices, just like Judas Maccabeus had done 200 years earlier. And now it's the next day, it's Monday, and Jesus is back in the temple and he's teaching. And the religious leaders plot to eliminate him. So there's no reason why now not to think, okay, now we get why. All of this background is there. All of the, the symbolism, he's reenacting all of these things. They saw Jesus' movement as a threat, and they saw Jesus as a revolutionary. Yet they entirely missed the type of threat that he is. and the type of revolutionary that he was. And so they set a trap. We read it in verse 14. Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the tax that was being talked about here was not just taxes in general. It was not just like, should we pay taxes or not? Rome had instituted taxes all over the place. There were taxes for buying things and selling things, entering uh, towns, kind of like your sales tax. Those taxes existed. But this was a particular tax, a particular tax that was only for subjugated peoples. So Roman citizens didn't have to pay this tax. It was what was known as the poll tax or tribute tax. It was one denarius that you had to pay once a year for the right to be subject to Rome and have Caesar as your true Lord. And it was brought in during a census in 6 AD. So we know about this on other ways, not just because of historical documents, but because in the Gospel of Luke, it records that Joseph and Mary, his betrothed, who was full with child, had to travel to Bethlehem in order to be recorded in the census so that they could be taxed. That was the implementation of this particular poll tax or tribute tax. Very faithful Jews refused to pay it. And one leader of such a group was a guy named Judas the Galilean, another Judas. So Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Galilean. Why was he known as Judas the Galilean? Because he was Judas from Galilee. And he said, you should not pay the tax. We are not going to bend the knee to Caesar. We only bend the knee to Yahweh God. And he gathered a group of zealots up in Galilee. And then he marched them into Jerusalem. And he went and temporarily cleansed the temple, driving away the Romans. And essentially was declaring, the kingdom of God is at hand. We will not bow to Rome anymore. And what happened to Judas the Galilean? Well, we know because in Acts chapter 5, the high priest says, what should we do with these Christians? And he says, well, you guys remember Judas the Galilean. He upstaged a revolt, and the Romans captured him, killed him, and his followers scattered. So probably the same thing's going to happen with these Christians. But nonetheless, he had a revolt, an armed rebellion against Rome, and temporarily, temporarily threw off the Romans in Jerusalem. So here's Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee, outside of Jerusalem. He gathers disciples. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And then on Palm Sunday of Passover week, he rides into Jerusalem like Solomon, goes and cleanses the temple like Judas Maccabeus and Judas the Galilean. And the religious and political leaders know what's going to happen next. And so they say to him, should we pay 
or should we not? Yes or no, Jesus? So again, this is not about tax policy. It's rather about, is Jesus like those two Judases? And it's a trap. Because Jesus is stuck in a place where if he says, no, do not pay the tax, that is not what faithful Jews do, do not pay the tax, then he would be declaring himself to be the Messiah, but the Romans would then come and capture and crush Jesus. Or he could get scared. Should we pay the tax or not? Yes, just pay it. I don't know. I don't have a thing to say about it. Just pay it. And all the people would know he's a fraud because a true Messiah would say, don't pay the tax in their minds. But if he did that, he would be seen as a fraud and he would lose the popularity of the people. Essentially, what they're asking is, look, you talk about a kingdom. What kind of kingdom are you bringing? What kind of insurrection are you leading, Jesus? Are you the Messiah or not? And we need to pause here for just a moment because I'm using the phrase kingdom or kingdom of God, and we've talked about it here before. It was the most common phrase that Jesus talked about. His preaching message was the kingdom of God is at hand. When he began preaching in Mark chapter 1, his message and repeated message throughout the gospel of Mark is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe. I have come to usher in the kingdom of God. And the problem is that we, as Christians in the modern world, we as modern Christians spiritualize that language. We hear kingdom or kingdom of God, and we naturally just turn inward, and we think kingdom of God is about my salvation. It's about what God is doing in my heart. God is doing something in me. The kingdom of God has entered me. And there's truth in this. But we're buying into modern Western assumptions. They were birthed in the Enlightenment. And the modern Western assumptions are this. Religion and faith are internal. They're personal. And they have nothing to do with your public life, and they have nothing to do with politics or the political realm. But no first century Jew would have seen religion and faith as private and personal. They knew what anybody who actually thought about it would realize. They knew that there are theological commitments and foundational beliefs that underpin every political view. You take a political view in our country about humanity, identity, laws, economics, how we deal with immigrants, how we deal with people in our own country of different races, how we deal with anything in our country, and that the political views have ultimate commitments underneath them, behind them. Theological beliefs, and you may not believe in God, but you still have a foundational belief system, which is essentially your religion, that underpins all political views. And a first century Jew knew this. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, they're wondering, you keep talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus. Are you a revolutionary? Are you the Messiah? And then Jesus looks like he's cornered until he gives that phrase that we all have heard, many people have known, regardless of whether you've been in churches in your life or not, you've probably heard it before. Jesus responds in verse 15 and 16, knowing their hypocrisy, why do you put me to bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
And they brought one to him, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. A denarius was a silver coin with only, only worth one day's wage. And it's great, Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Does somebody have a denarius? He's kind of like, does anybody have a denarius? He doesn't have one on himself. But they did. Either the Herodians or Pharisees, probably the Herodians did. Faithful Jews, scrupulous Jews who followed the law would not have had one. Because not only did it represent wealth, but it also represented accepting Rome as your Caesar and Lord. So he's already putting them on the defensive. He doesn't have one. They do. They give him one. And he says, whose likeness is on it? Well, it was Caesar's. with His beautiful Roman nose right there. His image was imprinted on every coin. Silver that he had taken from his own treasury and imprinted his image on it. And the inscription on it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, chief priest or high priest. In other words, Tiberius was the guy's name. He is saying, I am the Caesar, the emperor, the king, your king. I am the son of God. I am the high priest. This coin was filled with idolatry and blasphemy. Jesus says then, in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that word render is a great flipping of the terms. The first one is that the, the Pharisees and Herodians come to him and say, should we pay the tax? In another um, uh, one of the Gospels, it says, should we give the tribute to Caesar? Should we give, should we pay? And Jesus doesn't say, yes, you should, or no, you shouldn't give or pay. He says, you should render, and it's a specific verb that means more like return or pay back. Return to Caesar what belongs to him. So should we give the tax to Caesar? And he says, return to Caesar what belongs to him. And so literally on one level, he's saying, look, it's Caesar's silver behind every piece of, of metal that you're holding. It was all his in the first place. It's his image and inscription that are on it. It belongs to him. Give it back to him. Should we pay the tax or not? Look, it's his. Return it to him. You don't want that in your pocket. And yet, the phrase that he uses is also subtly seditious. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay back to Caesar what he deserves. And what does a Caesar deserve? Well, inside of this phrase would have been something common to a Jewish understanding in that first century, which was the final words of a guy named Matthias who was a high priest during the time of the Maccabeans. And as he was dying, he gave his final speech. And it's recorded in 1 Maccabees chapter 2. And he tells the people listening to him as he's dying, I want you to follow my son Judas Maccabeus and go and fight and he uses this phrase, avenge the wrong done to your people by the Assyrians, pay back the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans in full. And that phrase, that word payback is the same one Jesus uses. Pay back the Syrians what they deserve is what Matthias says. So when Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, 
he's literally on one level saying, it's his coin, give it back to him, pay the tax. And on another, he's saying, what does a Caesar, a dictator, a pagan, idolatrous, blasphemous tyrant who's evil and unjust, what does he deserve? Pay the tax? Rebel? Which one was he saying? Yes. And especially when you add on this next phrase, into the things, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He's limiting Caesar's authority and any king's authority when he says, basically, only God deserves your allegiance. Only God deserves your total allegiance. No king or kingdom otherwise does. This was one of the first limits put on the authority of governors and kings ever. Because back then, in pretty much any country, they assumed that whoever was in charge, the political powers, the king, the emperor, they, they were, had divine authority and right. So they spoke on behalf of God if they were not calling themselves God themselves. But here Jesus says, no, there is one God, and no king is ever that God. No government is ever God's. So it had a limit on the power and authority of any government. And yet, Jesus is saying both pay the tax, sort of, and resist the evil of those in charge. In other words, what he's saying is engage the political system that you're in. Don't avoid the culture like the Essenes did hiding in their caves. Don't conform to the culture like the Herodians did, letting their moral and ethical values be completely washed over by the Romans. Nor is it just fight, thinking that if you kill the enemy and take over power, that's the way to go about it. Jesus is saying engage the political system, but God is always first. And this tells me that for Christians, it should not be easy for a political party to have you in their back pocket. Jesus doesn't go into the answer, which was actually a political answer. Should we be a part of this party or this party? And Jesus says, yes and no. Follow God. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And I love that he says in the things that are God's, because then we ask the question, what things are God's? And of course, the answer is everything, right? Everything is God's. Render unto God the things that are God's. Well, that's everything. But actually, I think he's using this phrase, and if you think about what he's just done with the coin, right? So whose image and likeness is on this coin? Well, give it back to him. It's his coin. On what has God placed his image and likeness? Not a coin, but you. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, it says in Genesis 1.27. God's image is on you. Give to God what belongs to God. Yourself. You. Which means what you want most in life, your priorities, and of course means your time, your money, your relationships, your body, your identity, your politics. 
Jesus' kingdom is not just about your inner life. It's about your whole life. And God wants to move not just in you, but in the culture in which you live. The priorities, values, laws, politics of a society. Jesus' kingdom movement had profound, profound social and political implications. It was a revolutionary kingdom movement. And we know this because when Jesus was talking about the kingdom and the way he lived his life was not just about personal piety, right? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry in Nazareth on the Sabbath by reading the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he says this, the, the, the scroll of Isaiah 61 was the hope that one day a dawning light of salvation would come, that God would flatten the hills and, and come and bring justice and mercy and his salvation. And Jesus himself, reading from Isaiah 61, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He rolls the scroll back up and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news to the poor, sight to the blind, liberty to the captives and the oppressed. So think about what's being talked about here. When Jesus is talking about bringing the kingdom, he's not just talking about you being a better person. He's talking about what he has come to do for the poor and the oppressed and the criminal. So does God's kingdom have something to do with economic policy? With laws, justice, criminal justice? Probably, yeah. And then what does Jesus do in his life, his actions? He rebukes rabbis, the religious. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, the outcast. He calls Samaritans, the hated enemy of Israel. He calls them his neighbor. He heals the sick and the demon-possessed, people that because of their issues were unclean and not able to be a part of the society. He restores them to society giving agency and voice to the vulnerable and the outcast. And then he calls on his disciples to do it differently than the political realms. It says in, in Mark 10, which we talked about two weeks ago, hey, look, you've, you've seen what the Gentiles do. He's talking about the authorities, talking about the Romans, how they use authority. Don't use authority like them. If you have any agency, any power, any voice, if you are a child of God, you want to be great? Be a servant of everyone. You want to be first? You want to be successful? Be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served by others, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus' kingdom movement is a revolution against kingdoms and revolutions. Think about it. Every kingdom on earth, every regime, every administration, has the power and the wealth. Whoever's in charge has the power and the wealth. And every revolution in history is basically a violent overthrowing of those in power in order to then gain the power and also have the wealth. It's either using politics or violently overthrowing politics to have the political. But Jesus is a king without the money without the titles, without political power. Jesus' kingdom is not about gaining power. 
It's about giving it away. I mean, that's the gospel, right? That's the good news. Jesus did not come to kill his enemies, but to die for them. Jesus took the poverty, the rejection, the suffering, the judgment that you deserve so that you can have the wealth, forgiveness, mercy that he deserves. This story, this story is about two kings, two claims to be the king, one on the coin and one standing there. Two claims to the throne, Jesus, Caesar. Tiberius claims to be the Caesar, the emperor, the king, the son of God, the high priest. Jesus, standing there, claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, the king, the son of God and high priest. One of the two claimants has all the money, all the power, all the armies. The other doesn't even have a denarius. Which one is king? And the question is really down to you and me too. Which one is king for you? Jesus or Caesar? And it sounds sort of obvious. Well, it's obviously Jesus, right? But I would suggest that each one of us battles with that every day. Because it's not just Jesus or Caesar like a Roman emperor. It's Jesus or some other Caesar. Whatever king sits on the throne in your life. Money, approval of people, your kids' happiness, your success, your political party. Something is vying to be a Caesar. Jesus or Caesar, one will enslave you and kill your soul. The other will set you free. When you accept Jesus and his claims to be the Christ and his upside-down kingdom, you may lose what you right now think is most important, but you will gain what you most need. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose will it is to restore all things in and under your well-beloved Son, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that we, who are divided and enslaved by our own sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah.